Good morning, Terra family. It's good to see you this morning. Today we're going to be uh, continuing in Matthew, but then breaking from Matthew um, for a good long extended season. So just to kind of give you a preview of where we're going to be going, um, today we'll be finishing up Matthew 25, but there are was that, six, seven, eight, three more chapters after this that we'll be getting into, but we'll be breaking for Advent starting next week through Christmas, a time of preparing our hearts to anticipate again, freshly, the coming of Jesus, that greatest gift to the world, to us, to you and to me. And then in January and February, we're going to be uh, diving into a series, it'll be six to eight weeks or so on the promises of God, just to be able to spend a special set-apart time contemplating God's promises to you and I, and considering the implications for our lives, and I'm looking forward to that series. I think that's going to be encouraging to our hearts. And then come March, I guess, we will jump back into Matthew, and for about two more months be in Matthew, uh, right through um, Easter, and then the, the week following Easter, if all goes as planned, we will actually finish with Matthew 28, the last section there on the Great Commission, where Jesus sends out his disciples to Uh, to go and make more disciples of all the nations, teaching them what Jesus has taught us. So, it's been a long ride, two years, um, and uh, and counting, Um, but it's been a good one. So, today we're going to be finishing up uh, a section of Matthew's gospel. It is kind of an appropriate breaking point. This is really the last teaching, explicit direct teaching, that we see, whether Jesus' audience is his disciples or the Pharisees. Um, from here on out, starting in chapter 26, it's all narrative. It's all story. It's all the unfolding of the events that took place in the life of Jesus in that final week leading up to his death and resurrection. And as over the last few weeks, we've heard Jesus' teaching, um, what, what he's been actually addressing is uh, an answer to the question that his disciples have been asking about the signs of his coming at the end of the age, his second coming. The incarnation, that Christmas that we celebrate, that's the first time Jesus shows up in this world. It's not the last. And so they're interested to know what should we expect will be kind of the precursors that we can look to to indicate your second coming. And tellingly, over the last few weeks, Jesus spends a lot less time on talking about the signs of his second coming and a lot more time on encouraging his disciples to be prepared for that second coming because it's so easy kind of slide by with complacency and take for granted what it means to follow Jesus as a disciple, he wants to make sure that we're on the ready, on the guard, prepared for his return. It culminates in this passage at the very end of Matthew 25, verses 21 through 36, 31 through 46, where Jesus is talking about a real future historical The judgment will take place for him. And he will judge the living and the dead. He will judge those who will enter into eternal life with him and those who will enter into eternal punishment. So let's read together Matthew 25, the end of that chapter. Probably you've got a little subtitle that was a note added later in your Bibles, not a part of the original Gospels that says the final judgment. We'll start in verse 31 and read through verse 46. Should be on the screen behind me as well so you can follow along there if you'd prefer. When the Son of Man comes in his glory... This is Jesus, by the way, still speaking to his disciples, which we're told um, earlier in chapter 24. They come to him privately, so just picture the audience as the disciples here. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. 
Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? King, Jesus, will answer them, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. A stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. They will also answer saying, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? They will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, not do it to me. And all these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So big idea today, the main point I could sum it up is this. The obscure ministry that we may see as unimportant or insignificant, Jesus here is seen celebrating in all his glory. The obscure ministry we may see as insignificant, Jesus is seen here celebrating in all of his glory. And the ministry in view here, in this scene, the judgment, becomes this primary criteria by which Jesus uses to separate those who will join him for eternity in his eternal kingdom from those who will enter into eternal punishment. So that's what we're going to spend time unpacking and looking at today. But let's step back for a moment, especially for those who may not be as familiar with our broader context here in Matthew's gospel. First of all, you've, you've heard us talk at length and remind you regularly that one of Matthew's main emphases is on teaching us about the kingdom of heaven. Really, Jesus' emphasis on teaching his disciples and the people of that day about his kingdom. They had a very different idea of it than what Jesus came to present. I, I like uh, what Paul Fekita said last week as he was teaching on the passage before. He said, the kingdom of God is God's reign through God's people over God's place. But not in the physical sense of a kingdom with boundaries, which is what Jesus' disciples were expecting, but in a, in a much more spiritual, intangible sense. So Matthew, to this point, has taken time to unravel and unpack this paradigm shift concept of the kingdom of heaven. Now, there, there's, there's still the kingdom of heaven in view, but in Matthew chapter 25, we've seen over the past few weeks, specifically, Jesus is offering an invitation through exhortation in his kingdom. Right? Exhortation is just a fancy word for a strong plea, and in this case, a strong plea with his disciples to live now, citizens of this kingdom. The kingdom exists now. There's a now and a not yet. He's calling us to join him in his kingdom now. The concern, the implicit concern on Jesus' part that comes through in Matthew 25 is that there are some who will claim this label 
as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Some who claim this label as a Christian or a disciple, a follower of Jesus, there isn't anything distinctive about their life corresponds to this claim. Analogy perhaps would be someone who is born into a family but then estranged, self-imposed estrangement. They abandon the family, they want nothing to do with the family, but then one day it becomes convenient to claim the identity, the last name and the biological heritage with this family. When they're in a time of need, they come to the family and they say, would you help me? I'm in need. Functionally, they don't operate as a family member because when the tides turn and the quest is reciprocated, they're nowhere to be found. They're not there to help out. There's an expectation of family blessing without an embracing of family obligations. It might be a kind of an analogy to the concern that Jesus had here for his disciples then and future. In a, in a prototypical example of this, we've seen over and over again in Matthew's gospel are the Pharisees. The problem was the, with the Pharisees is that they had this false sense of security, that they were secure as, as a member of God's people in his family because of their physical heritage. We actually see in John's Gospel, chapter 8, a vivid uh, depiction of this false sense of security in this exchange Pharisees have with Jesus. There they claim, well, we are the offspring of Abraham. So implicit in that is their understanding, this is our ticket to privilege, because Abraham, the father of faith in Israel, we have a biological lineage and connection to. Jesus, in so many words, comes back and he says, wait a minute, that, that's not the measure by which a true citizen of the kingdom of heaven is made. Maybe the offspring of, of Abraham in a physical sense, but your life it doesn't correspond to his in all the ways that matter most. He trusted me, evidenced by his action. That's all paraphrased, but that's what Jesus is saying. This is more close to the actual words that he used. You do not do the works, Abraham. You are of your father the devil because your desire is to do his will. Self-serving and self-glorifying will. So there was a concern on Jesus' part that is part of the impetus for these teachings throughout Matthew 25 that there would be disciples then and future who would get through their whole lives Identifying as Christians without actually ever being one. How does this happen? Well, there are probably a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons I think this is, that this happens is because Western Protestantism, we place such a great emphasis upon salvation by grace alone through faith alone that we become allergic to works, what we do, the good things we do, having any bearing at all on salvation. And it's true that your works and mine don't save us. However, are the best litmus test whether our faith is real. At the heart of this teaching, Jesus is zeroing in on the primary criteria that will be used to separate those who spend eternal life with him from those who enter eternal punishment. And that criteria is this. Those who care, he says, for one of the least of these, my brothers. That's the dividing marker. You may sound you may, you may think that that sounds, you may say, Pastor Daniel, that sounds a lot like a works-based theology. We believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus is our Savior and our Lord. I would say yes and amen to that. But understand, in this passage, profession of faith was the starting point for both the sheep and the goats. Verse 37, when the righteous answer, they say to Jesus, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? In verse 44, unrighteous or the goats or 
those who would enter into eternal punishment. What do they say? Then those on his left will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger, naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Profession of faith was there for both of them. This teaching doesn't negate the need to profess Jesus as the son of God who died on the cross for our sins and rose again from the dead. Literal, historical death and resurrection of Jesus, fully God, fully man. It doesn't negate any of that. That's assumed here. Virtue of the shared profession that the sheep and the goats have. Point is, as Jesus' brother James says later in the New Testament, faith without works is dead. The evidence of true salvation isn't less than belief in Jesus, but it is more than that. The evidence of true salvation is not less than belief, faith in Jesus, but it is more than that. However, perhaps what's even more notable here, that's all foundation to get to the things that at least I see as being probably what was most radical in the ears of his disciples. Perhaps what's even more noteworthy about this teaching is that Jesus describes here the form of works, a particular form of works, which true disciples will be most easily recognized by, and it may not be what you think. Examples of what it's not. First of all, it's not mighty works and miracles. That isn't the ultimate defining marker by which Jesus is able to discern his true disciples. A teaching that feels quite similar to this one in some ways back in Matthew 7, where Jesus says that, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Many on that day, he says, many on the day of judgment will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And he will say, I never knew you. Apart from me, workers of lawlessness. Mighty works and miracles are not the measure which Jesus will separate the, the sheep and the goats. Now, that begs a host of other questions that I've wrestled with. Why would God allow those who aren't actually Christians to be able to do mighty works. I don't know that I have the answer to that. I think it probably has something to do and speaks to the, just the mystery of the way in which God advances the the gospel in this world in ways that we don't quite understand or expect. It reminds me of the Apostle Paul and his words to the Philippians when he's writing from prison and he talks about how there were some preaching the gospel while he was in prison out of envy and rivalry and selfish ambition in order to try to Supplant Paul is the most popular preacher of the day. Paul's response is remarkable for what he says. He says, what what then shall we do with this? Only that in every way, whether in pretense, pretending to be a true disciple, or truth, Jesus is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. It's amazing, right? God is working undoubtedly through those whose, whose faith and motives are insincere as they preach the gospel. People are nonetheless coming to faith. It was powerful of a tool as mighty works and miracles can be, and are a way in which God manifests himself in this world. Perhaps especially a post-Christian culture like we live in in the Northeast, where intellectualism is king. Nonetheless, supernatural works will not be the ultimate measure marker, which Jesus separates the sheep from the goats. Secondly, it won't be the number of people you've led to Christ. Again, think of Paul's comments that we just heard from Philippians about those who preached Jesus out of rivalry and selfish ambition. I'm sure that there were people who came to Christ through their ministries, despite their insincere faith. Some of you may have heard of the evangelist back in the 1940s, Charles Templeton. He was a contemporary of Billy Graham, actually good friends with Billy Graham. They did some evangelism ministry together. He traveled Europe. He preached in 44 of the 50 states 
in the United States um, and had a prolific evangelistic ministry. Later in his life, came an agnostic. Thousands upon thousands of people professed faith in Jesus through his ministry. Criteria by which Jesus evaluates a true and false believer then is not how many you've led to Christ, at least not ultimately. So what is it? Criteria then by which Jesus evaluates true faith as seen in this passage at the judgment are those who live lives that are marked by the ministry of obscurity. Lives marked by ministry, seemingly insignificant moments to seemingly insignificant people who are hurting, marginalized, who are overlooked. That's who's on display here. There's more. The application is not a general one here, the poor and hurting of the world in general, but it's actually a specific subset of people in this world. Jesus' brothers and sisters, church, family of faith, which for some of us may seem kind of unexpected. You might expect the poor and marginalized in general at least, or of the world to be who's in view here, but this passage doesn't offer the generic message, care for the poor and you're caring for me. Jesus says, care for the hurting in the church, you're caring for me. It doesn't mean that God's indifference to the concerns of the poor and the hurting in this world. I mean, just read the rest of your Bibles. It's everywhere. It simply means that the least of these Jesus has in view here is not a blanket statement here about physical and social deprivation. It's actually about us, about how we're treating one another in the context of the church. This, in this passage anyway, the primary measure marker by which Jesus separates the sheep from the goats. I just want to clarify biblically the case for that statement, that the church is in view here. But I want to draw it out anyway. We, when we're preaching here at Terra Nova, or hopefully at any church, our, our goal as preachers is to be able to unpack what we're saying from the Scripture, show you from the Scripture how it says what, what we're saying. First of all, wherever this term that Jesus used, brothers, is used, it always is in reference to either your biological family or your spiritual family, the, the family of faith. And in fact, um, in Matthew chapter 12, we see a good example of this, where Jesus was teaching in this home, and it was very crowded, and somebody kind of comes in and, to get his attention because Jesus' family was looking for him. And Jesus responds to this person, well, who are my mother and my brothers? He stretches out his hands towards the disciples, and he says, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Clearly, when Jesus uses this term, the least of these my brothers, he has in view not his biological family, but the family of faith, those who are of the household of faith. Then when he uses this term, uh, the least of these, that word least is actually a superlative of little ones. Got more extreme, it's to the greatest degree of the meaning little ones, which we've seen multiple times in Matthew's gospel, right? Jesus is usually using a child as an example, and he loved the kids, but he was ultimately referring to his disciples. He's talking about little ones. Back in Matthew chapter 10, we see that Jesus is talking about, he uses this term little ones, and he's talking about the reward that will be received by those who care for his disciples as they go out on mission. He says this, whoever receives you, he's talking about his disciples, whoever receives you receives me. Does that sound familiar, first of all, from our passage today? He goes on to say, and Whoever gives one of these little ones, again, disciples, a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So why would the ultimate measure marker in view here at the judgment be 
the ministry of obscurity, particularly within the household of faith? Well, a couple of reasons. Number one, Jesus has a special love for his family. When we love others in the body of Christ, we're actually loving Jesus' immediate family members. We, we can get this, right? If we have Jesus in us, and he's working his heart in us. We love our neighbors with a certain kind of a love, but we have a special love and special loyalty to our families. And, and that's not wrong. Actually, a biblical priority we see even in God's love of the world in general versus his adopted sons and daughters in particular, right? Unless you think that maybe this is just kind of an isolated example of this principle, Consider Paul's words in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, where he says this, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Okay? One reason why perhaps the ministry of obscurity within the local church is the ultimate measure marker is because Jesus has a special love for his family, his brothers and sisters. Secondly, I want to propose another reason why Perhaps this is the measure marker, and admittedly, this one is more of a personal observation and not necessarily derived from this text. But it could be that this is the ultimate litmus test because of how easy it is to become disillusioned with your own family members, right? Sometimes our family members are the hardest ones to love. The old adage, familiarity breeds contempt. I think it's always easier to experience pity for those we, we know from a distance and see from a distance than the ones that we see up close, warts and all. Sometimes it's the ones closest to us that we feel are least deserving of our, our mercy and of our kindness, even when they're suffering. The temptation is to, to overlook them just ex, and, and just offer our compassion and our pity to the, those we don't know as well, the world around us, because our, our own family, spiritual family, doesn't deserve it. They should know better. But here's the thing, if we can love those who are closest to us well, especially when they're acting unlovable, a pretty sure sign that Jesus is at work in us. A word of caution here, there are some of us who are going to feel most comfortable serving and doing life exclusively amongst other Christians. Compassion for our brothers and sisters in Christ, for the church, but we struggle with or don't really have love for the world around us. But hear this faith that loves our brothers and sisters in Christ, but doesn't care about our neighbors. No more sincere than a faith that engages social justice in this world, but not within the church. So this is one of those places where you just need to know yourself. A lot of different experiences and preferences that influence our worldview and our, our perspectives. For some of us, it's going to be easier to love our church family, and, and there's a fear about the world, and we could easily justify ourselves by that but not be loving our neighbor. For others, it, we may be all too disillusioned with the family of faith who we think should know better. They're least, less deserving of our mercy, and so our love is extended primarily to the world. It circumvents the church. So you just gotta know yourself, okay? All right, so if a, if a criteria, if the criteria of Jesus is to separate the sheep from the, the, the goats by this observation of the ministry of obscurity within the household of faith, then who might that be? Who is that, very practically speaking, within the walls of the church? Three categories that I'm going to unpack briefly. First, the less visible. Secondly, the least resourced. And thirdly, the suffering. Jesus talks about how who were entering into eternal life, the sheep were those who visited him when he was sick and in prison and welcomed him as a stranger. 
It's the question of who are those among us who are isolated and who are removed from our view, either physically, literally, or more socially. Perhaps it's those who are on the periphery of our church family. Maybe they don't come as often to church, show up to tribe as much, or engaged in the extracurricular social and community activities we have, but maybe it's for good reason. Maybe for some of them, their physical health precludes them from being able to engage as much in community. Or maybe they don't enjoy the same support structure around them that you and I do. I know we've had people in our church family in the past who they're the only one in their biological family who's actually a Christian. And they just receive pushback from all the other family members. And that actually is a spiritual difficulty and a practical difficulty for them to engage as much in community life here at Terra Nova. The result, they become less visible to overlook. What about the least resourced? Jesus speaks here of how when he was hungry, um, the, the sheep fed him. When he was thirsty, they gave him something to drink. When he was naked, they clothed him. I'm not sure how many in our community here literally are going without these things so that they're starving or they're too cold from not having enough clothes. I don't want to assume there isn't anybody in that situation. More than likely, the majority of us aren't finding ourselves deprived entirely in these areas, but there's still a principle that applies here because one of the things I've observed that can be a hurdle to building community is when you don't have the same financial and material resources as others around you, so therefore it becomes harder for you to enter into the rhythms of life that they're in, the recreation, the social opportunities, the community. I don't ever think that's intentional on the part of us who have more to work with, Unintentionally, we can end up marginalizing some in our very community just by virtue of what we're capable of doing with the resources we have. What does it look like for you and I to embrace a principle like we see in Acts 2, 44 and 45? The beautiful picture of the thriving early church where we're told that all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the, proceeds, uh, the proceeds to all as any had need. Jesus experiences our love not only when we minister to those who are less visible, but also when we meet the needs of those who have less resources than we do. Thirdly, the suffering. All the examples that we just saw that Jesus gives are examples of fall under this larger umbrella of human suffering. And honestly, guys, all of us experience this to varying degrees. All of us will be found at one point in time or another as those on the receiving end. Jesus is describing here. All of us know what it is to suffer. Those Jesus commends here at the judgment, the thing that distinguishes them is when they encountered suffering of various kinds, they didn't shy away from it. Even the smallest needs that they saw, like a drink of water that was needed, they enter into it. Suffering can be hard to enter into. Other people's suffering in particular. It's hard enough to deal with our own, right? A couple reasons for that. Number one, you may feel, I have so much difficulty in my own life, I don't have the capacity to take on the difficulty and burdens of other people, to add that kind of complexity to my life. I think sometimes entering into other people's suffering is hard too because we don't always understand it. Think, well, I haven't been through that before, so how could I really come alongside them in their suffering? I'll tell you, being a human, one of the things that I know to be true is we tend to shy away from that which we don't understand. And usually the motivation there isn't a good one. It's usually out of fear or insecurity. This is where we need to lean into Jesus's love for us resources that his love provides us in the way of security. Because if you know Jesus' love, you can enter into other people's suffering because he will provide for your needs and the additional ones that you take on by virtue of your faith to enter into the burdens of others. 
And Jesus' love also becomes a resource for you where you can risk failure when you don't understand how to come alongside someone else who's suffering because even if you fail in that, even if you don't quite get it right, Jesus doesn't love you any less. So we can risk coming alongside those who are suffering because we are secure in Jesus' love. These are some examples of what the ministry of obscurity looks like within the walls of the local church, amongst the family of faith. And to be clear, as practical as some of these examples are, clothing the naked, feeding the hungry, giving something to drink to those who are thirsty, it's as much or more about presence as it is practical provision, right? Visiting those who are sick or in prison, welcoming the stranger, the one who feels on the outside looking in. Keep that in mind. Not just enough to recognize practical needs, but it also Jesus says he feels received by are those who enter into the social needs that people have feel marginalized. All right, now a couple of thoughts and observations, semi-related or not, to everything we've been talking about, but things I want to touch on before we close here. Number one, some encouragement for those who are suffering. Jesus sees you. It's one of the implications of this passage. How precious those are who are suffering when they're ministered to means Jesus sees you and your suffering. Clearly, that's one of the things Jesus is most sensitive to and aware of the suffering of his people. So much so that what you feel in your pain, he feels. And that when your needs are ministered to, when you receive from others, he is receiving. That's how closely tied to your suffering he feels. Scriptures tell us, and actually it was one of the scriptures on the screen during the first worship set in Hebrews 4, that Jesus, was, he suffered and he was tempted in every way on earth so that he could identify with our suffering and needs. So now when you or I are suffering, Jesus understands to such a great degree that it's as if he's experiencing it vicariously through you. He can give you the confidence to know your pain is not lost on him. And because he's the sovereign king on top of that, Jesus, you can also count on to provide, to do something about your pain and your suffering. Whether that's bring relief to you, whether you can be ensured that he is using it for your good. Either way, the sovereign king is at work to bring relief or good from your suffering. Secondly, some encouragement for the serving, particularly those serving in this ministry of obscurity. Jesus sees you. He himself is a recipient of your care. The way things normally work, as evidenced by the response of the righteous who are in view in our passage today, is that most of the time, the true disciple doesn't even recognize when they're about this kind of work. It's just an overflow, Jesus conforming your heart to his, that's almost going on unnoticeably, undetectably. It's not like you're keeping score and consciously aware. It's just what you do, Jesus ministering through you. I think that's why they're so surprised when Jesus points out these examples of when they were actually ministering to him. Nonetheless, there's something profound for us to take home here today. Jesus opens our eyes to with this teaching, and that is that his life is so intertwined with the needs of those around you. You minister to those people. You're actually personally ministering to Jesus, and he is receiving your love to a brother or sister in Christ personally. Not a cerebral. I don't I can't fully grasp it. Almost like Jesus takes up residence in the people that we love such that we're loving him simultaneously. And there's something powerful and profound there that adds a gravity to your simple, seemingly insignificant, seemingly insignificant ministry of obscurity. Meditate on that. Powerful. A way of showing your love for Jesus. Of loving him personally. What are you saying? Finally, 
I want to unpack the scene for you one more time. Draw out something that perhaps you've already seen, but I just want to make sure that we land here, that we see this. I want to read to you from Matthew 25, just verse 31, one more time. That's the scene for where all this unfolds. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So the setting of this scene, where this judgment takes place, is Jesus on his throne in all of his glory with the whole angelic host surrounding him. And what is it that will be most recognized and celebrated in this moment? Ministry of obscurity. Those unseen moments where you recognize the suffering of a brother or sister in Christ, someone whose sins and weaknesses and failings you may know all too well. Needed your help. Met that need. And that's what your life is about. Because that's what Jesus' life in heart about. So much so, when you do it to one of the least of these, his brother, doing it to him. Would you pray with me? I pray that um, we would be meet more keenly, become more keenly aware of a couple things this morning. Would you enlarge our heart's capacities, first of all, to understand privilege and the blessing that it is to be adopted sons and daughters of you. Be indirectly, Lord, but your love for your people comes through so clearly here. How it's almost impossible to separate their suffering from yours, their pain from yours, and what you feel when your people are going through difficulty. I pray that you would help us to experience a greater gravity and understanding of the significance of this ministry of obscurity. Open our eyes to see who are perhaps on the periphery, overlooked, marginalized among us. and Help us to feel what you feel, to know what you know about the significance of them to you, of their needs. Pray that you would by the power of your spirit, awaken our hearts in a slumber to this reality. Do not let us go on living this life, claiming the identity of a disciple without also embracing the responsibility. Lord, I know the fuel for that isn't this sense of obligation. It isn't because when we do good, we earn your favor. Fuel for that is understanding how we first, we were still sinners, were and are recipients of your love. Let's sink into us today as we enter into a time of communion and celebrating this. We pray all this.